like you to turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Pages of Christian magazines are flooded with advertisements for seminars, books, conferences, offering the key to church growth. Church growth is a hot topic today. And when a particular church has seen significant growth, you'll soon find other churches trying to discover that secret ingredient and bottle it somehow and use it. There's a real move today to market the church, to have user-friendly churches, to keep up with the changing culture. And those ideas are valid, they're useful, they're valuable, but they're only valuable insofar as they're consistent with God's pattern for church growth. Because real growth can't be manipulated and manufactured by the ingenuity of man. Because it's a spiritual activity. It's God's activity, and it has to be done in God's way. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church. And that building has to be according to His plan. Now, in our passage this morning, we have God's plan for church growth. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 16, we are given God's pattern for growing the church. And Paul indicates four things about it. The progression, the purpose, the process, and the power. First of all, the progression in verses 11 and 12. Now, last time we discovered in verse 11 that Christ had given some gifted individuals to the church. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Verse 12 tells us why. For the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Now, there are three phrases in this verse, and your translation may or may not indicate it, but the Greek prepositions imply that the latter two are dependent upon the first, making this a progression. The gifted individuals equip the saints so that the saints do the work of service so that the body of Christ is built up. Now, I want to look a little closer at those three progressive phrases. It all begins when the gifted men do their job. The focus of every evangelist and pastor and teacher should be to equip the saints. It's not how big of a crowd you can gather. It's not how many books you can write. It's not how famous you can become. It's not how entertaining you can be. The bottom line is equipping the saints. Now, what does it mean to equip? Well, that's the same Greek word used in Galatians 6.1 where we're told to restore a brother who has stumbled into sin. And so it means to help him back up, to get him back where he should be. It's used in secular Greek of setting a broken bone. Same idea. In fact, it's the word used in Matthew 4.21 where we read that James and John were sitting in their boat mending their nets, equipping their nets. They were fixing them. They were preparing them. They were getting them ready for action. And that's what these gifts are given to the church for, to equip the saints, to prepare them for action, to make the saints what they ought to be. Now, how do the gifted individuals go about accomplishing this equipping? Well, that's real easy. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, All Scripture is inspired by God, and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. The Scriptures are God's 
divinely provided instrument by which these gifted individuals use their gift to equip the saints. If you're already in line, the scriptures are used to teach and train you. If you're out of line, the scriptures are used to reprove and correct you. Whatever your need is, the scriptures have the answer. Someone has described the business of preaching this way. It's to comfort the disturbed and to disturb the comfortable. In either case, we are to use the Word of God. Now, it's unfortunate that far too many churches today are ignoring the Word of God. And because of that, the saints are unequipped and the leaders are usually going around trying to find various substitute activities to keep the saints occupied. That's not God's design. C.S. Lewis spoke to this issue when he said, Jesus said, feed my sheep. He didn't say, experiment on my rats. See, the job of the gifted individuals in the church is very simple. It's to take the Word of God and teach it and apply it to the lives of the saints so that they become equipped, so that they become all that God designed for them to be. Probably heard the classic story about Vince Lombardi when his team, the Green Bay Packers, lost to an inferior football team. He was very irate, and so he called a practice the next morning and he brought his players in. And they were gathered there not knowing what to expect. And he held a football up in front of them and he said, This morning we're going to get back to the basics. This is a football. Now that's pretty basic. But for Vince Lombardi, he was a fanatic about the fundamentals. And time after time, he would take them back to the basics of blocking and tackling. He would take them back and make sure that they were equipped. And because of that, he won three consecutive world championships. You know, sometimes I have an overwhelming urge to walk into certain churches and say, Ladies and gentlemen, this is a Bible. Too many of our churches are spending all their time talking about everything else but the truth of God. And the gifted men are called to take this word and communicate it to the saints so that the saints become equipped. I came across a story about a man named Sam who was seeking ordination as a deacon in his church, and so he had to come before the board. And they said, Sam, what part of the Bible do you like best? And he said, I like the New Testament. And I said, well, what book in the New Testament? What book? Yeah, what book? Well, I guess it would be the book of parables. They said, well, would you mind relating one of those parables to this council? Now, Sam knew he was in a difficult situation, especially if the men on the council knew the scriptures better than him. But he decided to take a bold attempt and proceeded on. And so he said, once upon a time, a man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among thieves. And the thorns grew up and choked the man. And though he had no money, he went on and he met the queen of Sheba. And she gave him a thousand talents of gold and silver and a hundred changes of raiment. And when he was driving along under a big tree, his hair got caught on a limb, left him hanging there. And he hung there for many days and many nights. 
and the ravens brought him food to eat and water to drink. And one night, while he was hanging there asleep, his wife Delilah came and cut his hair off. And he dropped, and he fell on stony ground, and it began to rain, and it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. And he hid himself in a cave. And a man went out into the highways and byways and compelled him to come in. And so he came into the city of Jerusalem and he saw Queen Jezebel sitting high up in the window. And when she saw him, she laughed. And he said, throw her down out of there. So they threw her down. And he said, throw her down again. And they threw her down 70 times, 70 times. And the fragments that they picked up were 12 baskets full. Now, said Sam, whose wife will she be in the day of judgment? (laughs) Well, according to this article, no one on the council felt qualified to question the candidate any further, and so he passed. Now, that's humorous, and I hope that's an extreme case. And yet, when we take an honest look around, we realize that in many churches, the saints are unequipped because those with the spiritual gifts are not doing their job. And I'm sure it pains the heart of God. Gifted men are given to equip the saints. And that's why my biggest concern is not the empty seats. My biggest concern is the filled seats because I have a responsibility to equip the saints. That doesn't mean that you don't have a responsibility too. Peter said in 1 Peter 2.2, like newborn babes, we're to long for the pure milk of the word that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. See, when you have got gifted individuals desiring to equip the saints by the word, and you've got saints desiring the word to be equipped by, then you've got the ideal situation. Now, the second step in this progression in verse 12, is that the saints are equipped for the work of the service or the work of ministry. Now look at that closely and tell me who does the ministry. Well, the saints. You say, well, I thought the evangelists and the pastors and the teachers did the ministry. No, they equip the saints to do the ministry. Sometimes people say to me, oh, you're in the ministry. Well, that's a misnomer. Because, you see, all the saints are in the ministry. Ministry is not something reserved for professionals. Christianity is not a spectator sport. The design of the church is not a bus where the pastor sits up front driving and everybody else is in the back asleep. The design of the church is a body. And every member has a unique function. It's an every-member ministry. Now, Paul sent this letter first to the church at Ephesus. And when he originally came to Ephesus, they had already seen this principle in action back in Acts chapter 19. And I'd like you to turn with me for a moment there to see how Paul practiced this principle in Ephesus. Acts chapter 19, 
beginning at verse 8. says, and he entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the multitude, he withdrew from them and took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannius. And this took place for two years. Now notice the end of verse 10. So that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now that's interesting. Paul spent every day teaching in the school of Tyrannus, the result was that everybody in Asia heard the word of the Lord. Now, how did that happen if Paul was every day in the school of Tyrannus? Well, Paul was equipping the saints so that the saints went out and did the work of service. That's the practice. That's the design. He was doing it before he even taught it. Now, come back to Ephesians chapter 4. See, once we get saints equipped, it's easy to get them to do the work of the ministry. It's something they want to do, and it's God's design. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. We're all to be doing the work of the Lord. We are all in the ministry. I read about a church in Connecticut, and on the front of their bulletin were the names of the senior pastor associate pastor, assistant pastor, and then under that it said, ministers, the entire congregation. I like that. Because they understood this second step in the progression. The saints do the work of ministry. Which brings us to the third step at the end of verse 12, and that is the body of Christ is built up. God's design for building up the body of Christ is for all the saints to be equipped and serving You see, if you've got pastors that skip the first step and try to do all the work themselves, and you've got saints who are willing to sit and be spectators, then the body of Christ is not going to be built up. I used to have a friend who played a lot of tennis. And his right forearm was probably twice as big as his left. There was a situation where he used one member of his body so extensively that it was being overly developed while other parts of his body were underdeveloped. And that's what a lot of churches look like. You've got a pastor out there bulging, and they got the body of Christ atrophied because they're not involved. God's design is that the teachers and the pastors and evangelists are equippers for the ones who really do the ministry who are the saints, each one of us. That's the progression in God's pattern for church growth. Which brings us to the second point, and that is the purpose in verse 13. Verse 13 begins, until we all attain. That word attain means to arrive at. It's used several times in the book of Acts of people arriving at their destinations. And so Paul is talking here about the goal. He's talking about the purpose. He says, until we all attain, and then he gives a threefold purpose in verse 13, to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Now, some commentators think that he's talking here about our ultimate purpose when we're glorified in heaven. 
But that doesn't seem to, to fit the context because he's not here, ta- here talking about what Christ will do ultimately in heaven. He's talking about what the church is doing here on earth. And so this is a purpose that he has for us here. And it's threefold. The first is unity at the beginning of verse 13. He says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the unity of the knowledge of the Son of God. This unity is centered around two things. The first is the faith. And I've said before that when you see the word faith in Scripture and it has the article the before it, it's not talking about our act of belief. It's talking about the content of what we believe. And so when Paul talks here about the unity of the faith, he's telling us that unity is arrived at when we're centered around God's truth. You see, we don't get unity by holding hands and swaying. We don't get unity by compromising our beliefs. We arrive at unity when we stand together on the truth of God. That's the solution Paul gave to the church at Corinth, which was so divided in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10. He said, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and there be no divisions among you. What's the solution? Here it is. But you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. Now, how were they to become complete in the same mind? Well, when their mind was renewed by the Word of God. See, God's truth is not fragmented and divided against itself. So when the body of Christ is fragmented and divided against itself, that tells us the degree to which we're not standing on the truth of God. Unity is found in God's truth. And then the second thing he tells us is that this unity is centered around the knowledge of the Son of God. Now, he's not talking there about saving knowledge. He's talking to people who are already believers. He's talking about a knowledge that comes after that on the basis of our relationship with Christ. It's the knowledge Paul talked about in Philippians 3.10 when he made this expression, that I may know him. He knew Christ as Savior. He wanted to know him better and better. And you see, unity comes when each of us comes to know Jesus Christ more and more. We are drawn together to Christ, and in that process, we are drawn together to each other. If everybody who owned a guitar today brought it, and I said, all right, let's play. At worst, yours would be out of tune. At best, it would be tuned to your ear. But if everybody brought their guitars and we all tuned those guitars to one guitar, then we would have harmony. And that's what he's telling us here. We are each to be tuned into Christ. We are to be growing in our relationship with Christ. And as we do so, we come into tune with each other. We find unity in the knowledge of the Son of God. Second purpose is maturity. Notice the middle of verse 13. To a mature man. God's goal for us is not simply that we be united in one place. His goal for us is that we be mature. What's interesting to me in this verse is he's not satisfied with the fact that we be a whole bunch of individuals that are mature. Because he says he wants us to be a mature man. Now who's he talking about? Well, he's talking about the one new man he spoke of back in chapter 2 and verse 15. He's talking about the body of Christ he just mentioned in verse 12. 
We as the church are to be united as one, and we as the church are to be a mature man. We are to grow in our maturity together. Which brings us to the third purpose, and that is conformity at the end of verse 13, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. What's the measuring stick of our maturity? It's the stature of the fullness of Christ. It's to be like Him. Paul said it this way in Romans 8, 29. We have been predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. That is God's ultimate purpose for us in heaven. It's also His present purpose for us on earth. We are the body of Christ. We are the only body of Christ this world is going to see. The question is, do we look like Him? Do we measure up? That's our purpose. And you see, the only way we will achieve that purpose of unity, maturity, conformity to Christ is when we go back to verses 11 and 12 and the gifted individuals equip the saints, the saints do the service so that the body of Christ is built up. Now, some of those goals in verse 13 are pretty big. And because of their scope, it's pretty hard to know if they're being accomplished or not. And I think that's why Paul gives us the next couple of verses. These verses I call the process in verses 14 to 15. And here we see how this should look in our individual lives. Here Paul gives us two practical means by which we can measure our individual maturity. One is negative, the other is positive. First he gives us the negative in verse 14. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming. We are no longer to be children. Now, when he says that, there's an obvious implication, and that is that we all used to be children. And that's pretty obvious because we all come into the family of God the same way. We're born again. We become children. But the essence of this verse is that we're not supposed to stay there. The writer of Hebrews, writing in the fifth chapter, wrote to some people, and he said, by now, in your Christian experience, you ought to be teachers, but instead I have to get the baby bottle out and put it in your mouth. You haven't grown enough. We have to grow past that. You say, well, I'm a little confused. Didn't Jesus tell us to be like children, and now Paul's telling us not to be children? What's the difference? Well, you see, Jesus was exhorting us to be childlike. Paul is exhorting us not to be childish. See, childlikeness is that refreshing simplicity of faith that just trusts God and just obeys whatever he says. That's childlikeness. Childishness, Paul describes in this verse as instability and gullibility. Nobody is more gullible than a child. I remember the time when I uh, set Shane down and I was going to tell him that there was no Santa Claus. And I told Temp, I said, he's got, he's got to know this because the kids are going to tell him at school and, and I want to be the one to tell him. I think he was 15, 16. Uh, so I set him down. I said, Shane, I've got something I want to tell you. There's no Santa Claus. He's just make-believe. And his eyes got wide, and I said, I was trying to think of some way to, dis- to explain this, and so I said, he, he, he's just somebody that people made up, like the Easter Bunny. 
Well, Shane looked at his mom and said, there's no Easter Bunny? <laughs> now, in hindsight, I probably wouldn't do that again. But it does underline the fact that kids are pretty gullible. And that's what Paul is really focusing on here. He's, he's talking about the idea of immaturity and the idea of believing anything that comes along. And so to explain it, he says, they're tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Now, the illustration there is of a boat on the sea. Now, this was a vivid illustration for Paul because in his trip to Rome where he's now imprisoned, he had experienced a shipwreck. So he uses that illustration of being on the ocean and tossed about by the waves and carried by the wind to describe the immaturity of some Christians. Every wind of doctrine swings this person around. This person doesn't have settled convictions. Their opinion is the last sermon that they heard or the last book that they read. They're not settled on the truth of God. And so they're shifting all the time. And then he goes on and says that they are carried about by the trickery of men. That word trickery is the Greek word cubia, from which we get cube. It's only used this one time in the New Testament, and it means dice playing. And because dice were often loaded or manipulated in some way, this word came to be synonymous with dishonesty. And then the other word he uses here is the craftiness and deceitful scheming. That's a word later used of Satan himself. And so immature Christians are easy targets for trickery and deceit. Sometimes I see a preacher on TV who is very obviously not teaching the truth of God and in it for the money, and I say to myself... Who would ever support this guy? Well, if the truth were known, it's probably in a large part immature Christians who have a heart for the things of God, but they can't discern the difference. They're gullible. And Paul says we are to move away from that. The first measure is negative. Can I look back and say, I used to be childlike. I used to not be able to discern the truth of God, but that's in the past tense. When I'm measuring my maturity, I don't need to look at other people. I need to look at my own life and see where I have come from. And Paul says we need to be no longer children. And then he moves to a positive measure in verse 15. He says, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. There's the positive measure of maturity. Speaking the truth in love. Now, that's not the best rendering of that expression because the word used here doesn't actually mean speaking. Literally, this phrase reads, truthing in love. It means living the truth, getting the truth into your life. You see, maturity is not simply knowing the truth. Maturity is not simply talking about the truth. Maturity is living the truth. And you want to know how you can tell if the truth is getting inside of you? Well, it's the phrase Paul connects with it here. He says, living the truth in love. When the truth gets inside of you, it will always manifest itself in love. Because God's truth is not just a cerebral thing. It's not just head knowledge. When His truth gets inside of us, it changes us. 
And that change is to produce his love, his life inside of us. Peter said in 1 Peter 1.22, Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. That's a great verse. In obedience to the truth, the truth has come in. And what has it done? It's purified your soul. It's cleaned out that selfishness. And when it does that, it enables the love of God then to be manifest through your life. That's the way God's truth works when we get it inside. And so the positive measure of maturity is living the truth in love. And when that is evident, the end of verse 15 says, we will grow up in all aspects into Him. And so there's the process. We're no longer to be children who can't discern truth, but instead we're to be mature, having the truth in us, expressing itself in love so that we grow up into Christ-likeness. Which brings us to the fourth thing we want to say, and that is the power in verse 16. From whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Martin Lloyd-Jones called this verse undoubtedly one of the most complicated statements the Apostle Paul ever wrote. And I have to agree with him. He's talking here about the body of Christ and he's getting into the anatomy of it and some of these phrases are very difficult to understand but I think there are several things that are very clear here and I just want to make three statements that are obvious. One is, each member is carefully placed in the body. It tells us at the end of verse 15, Christ is the head. It says we are the body but we're not just thrown together haphazardly. It says we're fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies. Just as in the human body, members are carefully placed. In your joints, you have uh, a socket on one bone and a ball on the other, and they fit together and they work together and they're designed that way. It's the same in the body of Christ. We're each placed in the body in the specific place where God has placed us according to the gift He's given us. Second obvious thing is that each member is indispensable. You see that phrase in the middle of verse 16? According to the proper working of each individual part. Each individual part in the body has to operate and work effectively for the whole body to work effectively. And so every member is essential. No one can replace you. No one can do your job. And then the third obvious statement is that each member is powerful. The end of the verse says, when those each individual part is properly working, it says it causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Our proper working actually causes the growth of the body. That's pretty exciting. God has not simply given you a job to do. He has given you the power to accomplish it. And so our gifts are not just token things. They are powerful things. And when you are using your gift, it causes the whole body to grow. And, of course, in contrast to that, when you are not using your gift, it causes the body to suffer. And so the power of the body is dependent upon every individual member working. Well, there's God's pattern for church growth. The progression, the gifted individuals equip the saints so that the saints do the work of service so that the body of Christ is built up. The purpose... Unity, maturity, 
and conformity to Christ. The process, we're to no longer be children who can't discern truth, but we're to be living the truth in love and therefore growing up into Christ-likeness. And the power, each member of the body doing what God has called you and empowered you to do. May God help our church to be one that is growing according to the design that God has established in His Word.